good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. You get a lot of inspiration from Twitter. And uh, recently, there's been a, a lot of posting on Blockbuster. And as you know, Netflix, ironically, is showing a, a kind of in-memoriam video, uh, something called The Last Blockbuster. It's nostalgic, and, and a lot of it, the, the real interesting stuff for me was the examination, the autopsy, if you will, on, on Blockbuster and how the, uh, the gigantic chain, which basically proliferated this nation like a virus. If you look at the, uh, they have a, a map on how Blockbusters just started to pop up. It's very similar as when you watched a year ago, uh, the, the sick maps of the coronavirus uh, blowing up across the nation and, and incidences and cases starting to you know rise. So anyway, uh, the, the movie itself devolves into a lot of I remember when and and the nostalgia for walking into a blockbuster and the smell of a blockbuster and and all of those things that that come with nostalgia. And they did dispel. Maybe it's not so much an irony. They did dispel the fact that it, it wasn't really Netflix that killed Blockbuster. Uh, and that there was, the the irony really was, is that there was a moment where Blockbuster uh, could have bought Netflix. And so I guess right there is is that nexus of irony that a lot of people focus on. And and really none of this matters because we're going into something that, that I've started noticing on, on Twitter and a lot of people discussing. And that is, you know, uh, the love for Blockbuster, but reminding people that, you know, it was Blockbuster that came in. And killed the video stores, the mom and pop video stores, where a lot of places you had a, a far better selection or a more detailed or concentrated selection that allowed uh, video stores to kind of tailor their selections to their demographic. One tweet in particular from Drew Morton on Twitter, he's known as the Cinema Doctor. Uh, he said this, and he said, I do not understand the nostalgia boners, <laughs> I love that, the nostalgia boners for Blockbuster. It would be like celebrating the heritage of a Walmart a decade after Amazon puts it out of business. Video stores? Sure. But don't forget how Blockbuster kneecapped many local indie stores with better selections. It was this tweet that kind of took me back to episode 24 of my podcast called Consuming Cinema. And in that episode, I likened uh, the evolution of entertainment very similar to the evolution of the fast food industry. Let me get into some things first before we, we get started on all this, because before there is a huge nostalgia rush or love, and you're thinking, yeah, let's hate on Blockbuster and Hollywood Video and the chains, all those big ones that came out, let's look at also the mom and pop video stores, because they also played a part in, in a further uh, de-evolution of our culture. So first, I'm going to read you something that I wrote a while ago uh, that I posted for some friends uh, called Video Jones Owns Your Soul. And it was a post on renting movies in the 1980s. We had a video store in our small town called Video Jones. And really, as far as I remember, it was the first uh, video rental store. And they charged premium for a video rental, like something like five, six bucks to rent a video. And they socked you with the dollar rewind fee and the whole thing. And they, they knew they could get away with it because they really were the only game in town. And in addition to that, they rented video equipment. 
So you could rent VCRs, you could rent a camera, a Betamax, a Betacam, you could rent all of these things. And when you walked into this store, it was very dark. That's what I remember too. I had shelves and shelves of videos, which I was like a kid in a candy store. This was my candy store. However, it was dark and it was lit with like runway lights, like a movie theater. So you had, I don't know if they were LED, but they were these like Christmas lights embedded into the floor that allowed you to walk through and you just follow that pathway uh, to your favorite stand where your movies were. And it was a dark area that had shelving where the equipment was and they put this special mood lighting in there. It was really a cool place. At least I'm remembering it as that. And it was all there to entice you, to, to get you to buy. So I, I wrote this piece. It was called Remember Video Jones? For a hot minute, they cornered the market on beta and VHS, VCR, and video camera rentals. They were nestled into this red barn-like building up on North 9th Street across from the Franklin First Federal Bank. Now, I don't have a picture of the store nor even their logo as I looked in all of my old yearbooks for an ad. Nothing. And that doesn't surprise me because I remember them having the attitude that they were the only game in town and maybe they didn't have to advertise. And they were this for about two years. Kids today, I love that phrase, kids these days don't understand there was a time you drove to a video store and walked among the aisles of video covers and jackets to pick a handful of titles. You had punch cards that gave you a free rental and you got charged a fee for not rewinding the tape. You had paid memberships, which offered really not many discounts as far as I can remember. You had the status of belonging to Video Jones. You got your punch card, and after a dozen rentals, they threw you a bone. So keep in mind, you paid X amount of dollars per year just to belong to Video Jones on top of paying their jacked up rental fees. They were kind of like entertainment loan sharks. Nowadays, you download the file, legally or illegally, and it plays anywhere, your phone, tablets, laptops, or stream it right to your TVs. We now have so many movies to stream at our fingertips, we often end up watching the same shit because there's just too much shit to pick from and we don't want to waste our time on something untested. There's always a better deal. Video Jones had the big title collection and they also rented Beta and were the first to see the, the death of Beta and switch to only VHS. They also sold movies I was blown away when I walked in there in 1984 to buy a copy of the 1981 horror Ghost Story and to find it was almost $100 used. They charged that because they could. Now, I remember the main guy. Was he a manager of Jones himself or did he own it? I, I don't know. Who just smiled and shrugged in a I don't know what to tell you, kid kind of way. Buy it or don't. The store was so popular that a friend of mine, my best friend at the time and his family had a membership and they lived in South Bangor over 30 minutes away and they drove all the way to this place just because it was a kind of status symbol to belong to it. Video Jones was a small place lined with shelves holding the plastic jacketed video titles. They lit it with the white Christmas lights and, and had a special area lined with VCRs and new portable decks with video cameras, all for rental or sale. Now, rentals per tape were around 4 to $5. Sometimes I saw them go as high as $6. I think a lot of the $4.50 price was just to keep it under the fuck this five bucks threshold. 
This was pretty high for 1984, and that was the year, I believe, that they opened. And they charged it because they could. This was just before everyone realized there was money in video rentals. And by 1985, there were several stores in my town. And then by the late 1980s, grocery stores and and other places, convenience stores, uh, they were already offering 99-cent rentals. And Video Jones simply went away. I don't remember them being in business by the time I came home from living in California. They just quietly shuttered the place up and disappeared. Maybe they didn't take an ad out in our yearbooks because they felt they just didn't need to. I know the attitude. When I visited was, you want us. And I did. I wanted my own video camera. I wanted to own copies of all my favorite movies. The problem was a teen's uh, movie usher paycheck was going to get me some rentals and that was about it. I remember skipping class to drive up there my junior year to rent a copy of Creepshow to show during my study hall with Mr. Adams. I dropped almost half a tank of gas just to entertain my study hall. Why? I don't know. And think about that. We watched a bloody R-rated movie in high school study hall while Mr. Adams sat in the back in his room in the dark grading papers. Those days like Video Jones, are effectively over. So now you can hear my nostalgia in that piece. And it was really just addressed to some of my friends to get them to go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I remember that, wow. And that's what the last blockbuster focused on. There was this nostalgia and this love for feeling a tape in your hand, of picking something off the shelf, walking through the store with a stack of videos and knowing you were going to go out. It was like a ritual almost on Friday night for families and even date night for couples to go out and pick a movie. Somebody picked theirs and you picked yours. And that's all great to remember. Look, nostalgia comes in like 20-year cycles. When I was growing up, Uh, In the 70s, everybody was waxing nostalgic for the 1950s. And that's why on TV, it was Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and all these 50s-themed kind of shows. And in the movies, it was more American Graffiti and Grease. And again, all 50s stuff. You can name all these 50s films that were shot in the mid to late 70s through the early 80s because that was the time that people were waxing nostalgic for. They had memories But really, were they really good old days? And as a teacher, I used to teach that as well, that what we think are good old days, I mean, they really weren't. I mean, it's proven medically and scientifically that the human brain will try to suppress bad memories. And eventually, as we get older, it's why we remember only the good things. Look, I'm an 80s kid. I was a teenager in the 80s, and from 1981 through 85, I lived a John Hughes life. There is no doubt about it. And yet, when you look back, was it really all that great? We had terrorism. We had AIDS. Okay, we we saw poverty grow faster than in this country than since the close of, of World War II. It was it was crazy when you start looking at things. I mean, John Belushi died of an overdose and and it, there was just so much. We had a drug problem and crack rose up and the inner cities were still rotting. And what what was so great, especially like I said, we had AIDS, but we forget all of that. 
We sit back and we think, well, it was, you know, the height of Hollywood's golden era in 1984. We had Gremlins and Ghostbusters in 85. We had Back to the Future. We had Weird Science. We had John Hughes. We had Breakfast Club. We had Fast Times at Ridgemont High. We had all these great things. And we forget about the really darker, bad stuff. I mean, when your grandparents, for those of you who are old enough and remember your grandparents, oh, the 1930s, that's when things were better. Really? Fucking polio? You know, a World War II, the rise of fascism throughout the world, things were better. No real medical you know, treatments for anything. You got cancer. It was an instant death sentence. You, you got, you know, tuberculosis. It was an instant death sentence. I mean, penicillin and, and antibiotics were just starting out and there really was no cancer therapy at the time. So what was so great about the Great Depression? People were out of work. Uh, living living on the streets, moving from state to state just to, to do odd jobs or work in fields. I mean, the Grapes of Wrath and all that. I, I wouldn't say that the Grapes of Wrath is an ode uh, to the 1930s in the Depression era. So we become very, very idealistic and myopic in, in what we believe or construe as nostalgia. Before we get all nostalgic for mom and pop video stores, maybe we should look at things as Maybe they were part of the problem. And I would just hear me out on this. Look, I am all for, I want to make this very clear. I am all for retaining and making sure we preserve physical media, hard media, DVDs, even VHS and tapes. Movies should never disappear totally into the digital void. And there are a number of reasons I've specified about this. The biggest one for me is the ability to eventually alter them. And we have no permanent record of what they were originally conceived as. So you can go back in, you can edit, you can re-edit them, you can change things. You can do all of these things that a generation from now or two generations from now would never know. Imagine going back and censoring Blazing Saddles or changing uh, aspects of Gone with the Wind. Look, you have every right to not like content and not like even the context in which the movie was made in, in its history and in its era. But there is no right out there to systematically change things. And, and we can go into that censorship debate forever. But imagine two generations from now, an audience watching Jaws with a complete CGI realistic looking shark. You're, you're missing the point of what art is. And you can listen to my previous podcast on all of it. I don't want to sidetrack into that moment. But here's my point of saying that mom and pop stores may have been part of the problem. So hear me out. If you start taking our pop culture and liking, likening it to, fast, to the fast food industry, here we go. So originally you had small casino kind of, uh, you know, uh, what were they? Just small movie houses is what they were. And that's, we're talking the silent era, but it was a place where people gathered and they went to see something magical. Okay. The movies were a brand new thing and we're talking even before sound, but people became enraptured with them. And suddenly a star is truly born where these faces start becoming familiar to large groups of people. And we start becoming stitched together as a nation, as a people, as a culture through the faces of Sarah Bernhardt and Lon Chaney and eventually Charlie Chaplin and uh, Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, you know, Rudolph Valentino. Imagine the impact of, if you could translate Rudolph Valentino's 
uh, impact on women and translate that into today. I mean, who would you compare him to? Would it be Brad Pitt? Would it be a George Clooney? I don't know. But imagine if Valentino had full color, okay, 4K releases and, and had the, the optimum effects that were are available today back then. He would have been unstoppable. Suddenly it went from dozens to hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands to millions of people coming to the movies. And movie houses expanded into what were called movie palaces. And going to see a movie then was a big deal. There was no television. We had radio. And radio was its own entity. But there was nothing like going to the movies because it was a huge night out. People got dressed up and they went to go see stuff. Look, there's always been junk. There's always been great stuff and bad stuff and inept movies. Mystery Science Theater is a bevy of, of holdouts on old bad movies. So I'm not doing the, oh, back in the old days, it was all good. There was plenty of shit to go see. But the experience of seeing a movie was a big deal. And there weren't really the big or even many porn houses, okay? They, they were legit movie houses. Now, I'm sure there were places in, you know, back buildings and such that showed porn. That I'm not doubting, and I'm sure there were adult theaters. But what I'm saying is going to the movies was not a just fly-by-chance experience. It was a big deal to go, and you often could stay almost all day for a matinee. I was just telling someone recently when they were watching some old newsreel footage of Queen Elizabeth and her sister, and I said, you do know that that footage is not from a documentary. They were from newsreels. And she said to me, she goes, what do you mean? I said, back in like the 30s and 40s, they filmed newsreels and they released them like, you know, maybe once a month kind of thing. That's how you got your news. There was no nightly television. There was no streaming internet with pundits back and forth bringing you your processed news. This was straight there on the screen, and that's what you saw, and that's what you took in, and that was your window to the world. And then you got a newsreel, which could be 20 minutes. It could be 10 to 20 minutes long. Then you got a couple cartoons, Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry. They all started in movie houses. They weren't televised material. The same goes for Laurel and Hardy. The same goes for the Three Stooges. The Stooges became popular because they eventually went to television in the 1950s. Up until that point, you could only see the Three Stooges on the big screen. They were called shorts or reels. And there you got your full day experience. It depended, I guess, on the theater and the chains. And studios owned a lot of the theaters at the time. But there were small independent theaters. My point is... Compare the original movie houses or palaces to restaurants. Restaurants are where you go to get good food. Now, you can go to diners and cafes, which give you a step or two down and depends on where you go, maybe even more steps than that. But there wasn't fast food yet in movies. To see a movie, you had to go to the theater. Now, there were, again, all levels of movies. But then as society became bigger and after World War II, we're flush with that victory culture. We start motorizing. Highways are built and people are on the move and cars are going everywhere and people are moving to the suburbs. And suddenly the big city movie palaces were in danger because people are leaving the cities. They're going to the suburbs 
and they started setting up movie theaters in the suburbs and you had your single screens, but something else was starting to happen in this new motorized world. So you're going from big expensive restaurants to cafes and diners, okay? And now you're moving toward the drive-in fast food experience. Suddenly one movie house got the idea, we'll split this house and we'll put two screens up. Now you can come to the same movie house, go to one side and visit one movie, or you have a choice of another. We're expanding our menus and it starts moving outwards. Suddenly two houses move to three, then to four, and you start getting what is called the multiplex. Now they're all still located downtown. So follow me here, folks, as you see where I'm going with this in the way of of processing our entertainment in really goes back to episode 24 of Consuming Cinema. So we have these places in our towns, our downtowns, and that's where you went to go. I mean, I still remember growing up in a town where we actually had a movie theater called the Bijou and you went downtown to see your movie. In Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, you went downtown to see a movie at the Sherman Theater, which had been around since the early 1900s, since the turn of the century. So that was a movie palace at one point. It was a live theater, and then they converted it to a movie palace uh, where live entertainment went over to filmed entertainment. And suddenly something else happened. As our society became more motorized and on the go, and we didn't have time for certain things, and driving downtown and finding parking and all of that, can you guess what happened? Take a guess. The malls came. And the malls came uptown. And the malls opened up with hundreds of stores or dozens of stores under one roof, and they moved in movie theater chains. And these chains set up inside these malls to create the multiplex. And the multiplex could have two, four, six, eight, ten, and now there are multiplexes out there with 30 screens and up. And now we have a huge venue. We have all these new, what I call, fast food outlets. You've got to fill them with content. So suddenly movies went from, and again, there have always been bad movies. I'm not saying that. I'm not going back to the good old days. But now you're processing your content faster and movies are becoming a machine. They're becoming like an assembly line on how you make your burgers. There was a time when you made a burger by actually flattening the patty with your hand. It was ground meat and you made a homemade hamburger that had lettuce put on by hand and, and you, you just you decorated it by hand and you made a custom order hamburger. And then McDonald's came and fast food came and boom, now you're moving and moving and moving and moving. And all you have to do is see the founder with Michael Keaton to understand that process with McDonald's. We start doing this with our movies. Movies become a faster food for a society on the go. And this is the overall aspect of what happened to our entertainment. So movies become a thing and we're starting to crank out everything from really bottom of the barrel schlock all the way up to big stuff, but even something else is happening because Jaws and Star Wars will ruin it. Now, I have nothing but nostalgic memories of Jaws and Star Wars. I can tell you what movies, uh, movie theaters I saw them in. I saw Jaws in the Grand Theater in 1975, and I saw Star Wars at the Sherman Theater in 1977. And what good times, right? However, I do look back and I remember both theaters in bad disrepair. 
uh, water stained tiles and it smelled moldy in there. And they were on their way out because the new mall Cineplex was killing those theaters. That's why. So these theaters were already in decline by the early to mid 70s as the multiplexes were taking over. But when a movie opened back in the day, before Jaws, a movie like The Godfather would open in a handful of theaters across the country, and then it would take a year for it to come out and reach the suburbs. The Godfather could be in release theatrically for six months to a year before it even reached where it would get to you. And then something happened. A movie named Jaws came out, and Universal changed the way that movies were released. And it became what was known as a blockbuster, and it made $100 million in six weeks. And there was suddenly a whole new standard on our hands. Movies have to become instant, overnight successes. Within a month, they have to be garnering incredible amounts of money. And we have something called the summer blockbuster because, believe it or not, most studios at the time thought that summer was the downtime. People are outside. They're going to the beach. They're traveling. They're going on vacation. They're not going to the movies. They go to the movies during the rest of the year. Jaws changed all of that. Now people were leaving the beach to go inside air-conditioned movie theaters. And remember, movies had to compete also in the beginning, right around the 1950s throughout, with television. Air conditioning became a new thing for movie theaters to bring people in from the house and bring them into the movie house. Color became a big deal. Cinerama, Cinemascope, 3D, all the things that black and white television, your 12 to 25-inch screen, could not offer. So we're becoming a very competitive fast food society. And by the mid-1970s, after Star Wars and Jaws, movies were changed forever in the way they were made and the way they were received and released and most of all, marketed. And then we had something else. By the mid-1970s, we have HBO. We have cable, home box office. And now we can turn on our televisions and see R-rated movies. We can see nudity. We can see all of that at our convenience. We don't have to get in a car and drive. If you want to wait, because remember, there still was a window. If a movie came out in theaters, it might not make HBO for at least a year, sometimes longer. But then network television, they had already been doing this, but to compete with HBO and the growing demand for content, network television like the ABC Friday Night Movie, and I did a podcast on this, what they did is they went for the big motion picture blockbusters and they put them on. Now they edited them for television and I've got a whole thing on that if you go through my episode list on whether it's censorship or edited for TV. However, there was a demand. People wanted their entertainment. Television was stepping up its game, creating miniseries and doing whatever it could also to compete with HBO and cable, but they were bound by censorship standards. And then technology gave us another turn. And it gave us the home video revolution. And with home video, studios realize we can make a fast buck. And here's where I tie in where mom and pop stores may not be the most nostalgic, great things that we remember. They were part of the problem. Because studios were dumping incredibly huge titles with shitty transfers, pan and scan, uh, which is where they basically, they, they blow the frame up and they actually track the frame to keep the main subject in the center for you to watch. But you're literally missing 
at least a third of the movie. It's cut off. When you see a letterbox, that's where letterbox technology came from, giving you the whole movie. Go back and for example, I remember one of the first examples of realizing what I was missing was Ghostbusters. When the original Ghostbusters came out on VHS tape from Columbia, uh, it was pan and scanned and it was all cropped and, and cut, you know, pushed together. When I saw a letterbox version where they, they compared in a magazine, I saw the pan and scan VHS versus the letterbox. I'm, I'm literally missing a third, maybe even two thirds of the film. And we have VHS and we have beta and we have stores that open up that allow us to come in just like I read earlier. The first one in our town was Video Jones and it was a huge deal and you paid premium money for these rentals. Now, I'm not just talking out my ass because I worked at a video store called Main Street Video, guess where, on Main Street Stroudsburg. And I was there when we still had beta and VHS. And I got to tell you, it was fun. I was that employee that not only knew my technology and could help sell VCRs, but I knew my movies. And while there always was the new shelf, people would come in. What's new? Even if the movie was 20 years old, they didn't care. It's new. They had to rent it. And we also had that room in the back of our video store where I remember there was one client, one patron, and he was an old man and he constantly rented a porn film called Teenage Fantasies and he never seemed to bring it back. Or when he did bring it back, he rented it right back out again. He got a lot of mileage out of this tape. I, I don't even want to know what his Friday or Saturday nights were like. But he loved that video, and I swear he wore that thing out. So you had that. That's not really such a great memory. I mean, some of the clientele that came in that, that were taking these videos out of that back room, I don't know, man. That sketchy is just the beginning of, of words I would use to describe them. But you could argue that I'm just being nothing but judgmental. But I was 16. What did I know? However, I was recommending movies and I'd walk out from behind the counter and I'd walk through the aisles and somebody would take something and be like, what do you think of this? I'd be like, ah, I don't know. Did you see the first one of this? Or I'd talk about the series and they would start asking for me by name. I was that blockbuster guy before there was a blockbuster. And we were just this small little video store right next to an ice cream shop, an old fashioned, old timey ice cream shop called Sweet Creams on Main Street. And there was a pizza parlor, not down far down the road. And there was a KFC, which was still known as Kentucky Fried Chicken, right across the street. And up the road, there was a shoe repair shop. And we still had the Sherman Theater. And we had a tuxedo shop and a place called Flowerland. And we had Routsons and we had Wyckoffs, two stores that had been in the town for almost 100 years. This was the kind of town I lived in. And yeah, there's a lot of nostalgia there. I started looking at things a little differently when I read the Cinema Doctor's tweet because really this mom and pop store I was working for, they were part of the problem. We're just dumping, we're providing the outlet for dumping these really badly uh, produced VHS and beta tapes to the public just so they can consume it. And people were coming in and they were buying expensive forehead VCRs with you know, I guess, you know, stereo track and all that. And some of these videos, they didn't play that. You weren't getting a surround, true surround. And you weren't really getting a video experience because the, the most advanced television that I remember while I was selling there was something called the 25 inch. I think it was 25 inch. It may have been bigger that we had bigger tube TVs, but they were still tube TVs 
but it was the Sony XBR, which had these like really cheesy looking speakers on the side of it. We were pushing bad product. And out of this, I really do believe that there are some movies that were never, ever meant to be released onto home video, that they should be held and released every so many years in theaters for that theater going experience. Look, watching Superman 2, even that lousy Richard Lester cut, uh, I saw that in theaters where people went nuts. The standing ovations. Jaws is the movie that made me want to make movies because it's the first movie I ever saw in a theater. And I was a boy, but it was the first one where people gave it a standing ovation at the end. When people cheer and they laugh and they're crying all in this same gigantic movie house, that's an experience you do not get on home video. So then you have these mom and pop stores. And I worked at one, like I said, for a while. I was even able to bring home VCR machines and, and take them to parties. I was the movie guy. Like I'd come armed with like the latest movie that came out. People were like, how oh, do you get that? And it's like, well, I work at the movie uh, rental place. I did work at the movie theater too. And I used to let my friends in there. But to bring that cassette and pop that in on somebody's TV, well, you were the master of ceremonies, my friend. And that's a great nostalgic experience. But underneath it all, we're contributing to a far greater problem. And then the convenience stores and the grocery stores, well, they started renting videos too. And suddenly they weren't renting a premium dollar. You could get a $10 VCR rental for the weekend and you could get a 99 cent VHS rental because beta had pretty much gone the way of the dinosaur by that point. Now everybody had a, a video rental place. You could go in the grocery store and they had the revolving turret tower and you could turn them around and they had the empty cases. You pick the case, you take it up. They had a video rental desk and they put the tape in the case and you walked out. And nobody had memberships anymore. You want a movie? It's 99 cents. Everybody, it's egalitarian. But our movies became more of consumer product. Our movies were no longer treated as venerated cultural events and we're now treating them is Big Macs and McNuggets, filet of fishes Whoppers, whatever you want to call it. We now had officially fast food, and that was our entertainment. So once these guys came in, and that the problem with all of these were you had limited selections. And yeah, you can argue, oh, the hometown, the hometown uh, mom and pop stores, they have better selections. Maybe for you. But the catch was, if I want to see Aliens when it came out on VHS... And the mom and pop store only has three copies because they cost a hundred bucks a piece. And uh, the Netflix blockbuster uh, movie really goes into that. That's what I found really interesting. And, you know, you, you go into these stores and it's like, well, all three copies were rented out or they used to reserve the copies. So the person that needs to have that brand new movie, they already got it from you, man. Then you have to go and check around. I remember one time driving all the way up to a place called Delaware Water Gap and taking out a membership in a mom and pop place just to rent a Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3 Dream Warriors because every other place was out of it. And that included the grocery stores and even the gas stations. And the gas stations, they wanted credit cards to hold it because they knew you may come in and never come back with their movie. And those movies were a hundred bucks a pop. So there was a real mess here. There was a void, and that's where Blockbuster came in. And Blockbuster took all those little mom and pop stores and those grocery store outlets and those gas station outlets and said, 
Just come to us. We'll give you a fun membership. But when you come in, you get popcorn and candy and giant well-lit stores and no creepy back rooms where teenage fantasies can be rented out in perpetuate, you know, in perpetual rental. Um, it's safe. It's fun. And they made it an experience. So the mom and pop stores are now driven out. But the mom and pop stores also helped destroy the local movie theater palaces as the cineplexes did up in the mall. So as you see, it's kind of like that big fish eating the smaller fish and that, that big fish is eating the yet smaller fish, that, that food chain picture you ever see of, of the gigantic fish on top of the other one on the, all the way down to the tiny little guppy. And that's what was happening. And that's the reality of it without the nostalgia factor. Blockbuster just came in and as the cinema doctor said, kneecapped all those other smaller places. It organized, it consolidated. That's what it did. Picture all these small little restaurants all over the place and then build a skyscraper and put them all in there. A food court, if you will. That's why we got food courts in the mall. It's one-stop shopping. You come in, you don't have to look far. Everything's at your fingertips. And that's a problem when we start treating our food that way. No wonder as a society, a nation, and a global species, we're sick and we're sick all the time. Look at what we eat. And then we get angry at all of our movies. So they're good, they're shit, they're, they're cinema, they're, they're process, they're uh, theme park rides. We're angry because we are consuming garbage. Not all of it. There's still good stuff out there, but it's getting harder and harder to find that good stuff because now, instead of Blockbuster, Netflix came in and the internet came in. And now we have streaming outlets everywhere. And I'm going to equate this. The streaming outlets, no matter where you watch your movies, whether Crackle or Prime or Netflix, it doesn't matter. Where Blockbuster and the mom and pop stores were fast food and Blockbuster was the food court, I'm going to give you that the streaming outlets are vending machines. So now we walk up to a vending machine, we put our money in and we get our shit. And a lot of the times, let's face it, what's in a vending machine is absolutely no good for us. Even natural grain granola bars are nothing more than candy bars. They're just loaded with sugar. And that's what we're doing with our entertainment now. The streaming outlets are now our vending machines. So I'm gonna ask you, what will we be nostalgic for in 20 more years? Remember when Netflix had its premiere night or remember this? That's where we'll be going. And the blockbusters and mom and pop stores, even movie theaters will be a distant thing of the past. And we'll be waxing nostalgic for the way that films originally debuted on streaming. Just like we get nostalgic for MTV with a world premiere video on a network now, that doesn't even show music videos. What will we be nostalgic for in 20 years from now? What really is there left to be nostalgic for? Movies need to make a comeback. And what I mean by that, they need to make a comeback in the way that they're seen and that they are consumed and processed. We need to make sure the physical media never disappears. And not just for the experience of going to a blockbuster and the fun of renting it and the smell of a store but for the fact that movies are an experience that should challenge us, make us dream, wonder, cry, and laugh, and not just be consumed like a Big Mac, 
We should savor our entertainment. And we do need to see a return to movie palaces. Will it happen? I highly doubt it. We've got our vending machines now, folks. Let's see where that goes. Will you be nostalgic for a vending machine 20 years from now? I guess we're going to find out. This is Harrison Smith. Thank you. Support physical media. Buy your stuff on DVD, even VHS. Hold on to it. That's my appeal. Thank you.